Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. You're listening to the podcast, So There I Was. This is episode number 76. A thousand answers and no questions. Is that possible? 76? Right? Holy. How did we get here? Man. Shit. One day at a time. <laughs> one week at a time. Well, this is a special episode because we have kind of a legend back with us. Sugar. That is exactly what I was going to say. We have a Absolutely. legend with us yeah, tonight. Great guy. It's Colonel W.R. Spicer, author of Sea Stories of a U.S. Five Marine. Books. Five books. Five of them. Count them. Actually, when we had him on last time, the fifth book wasn't out yet. It yeah, was pending. Yeah. So, I think. Well, at least an audible. Anyway, but these are great books. They're available on Audible. They're available at Amazon. Fun, fun stories. Outstanding books and outstanding stories yeah. of leadership. Real quick, sponsor this week is HelloFresh. If you will go visit them at HelloFresh.com slash 50, so there I was, you can get 50% off your order and free shipping. We'll talk more about that during the show. That's huge. Absolutely, Sticks. You're right. Lots of good, amazing leadership stories. This is a man who developed his leadership as a boot private in the Marine Corps. Enlisted in 63, was a grunt in Vietnam, pulled out, went to OCS, flew helicopters, supporting the troops, flew fixed wing, aviate Harriers, A4s, and is a is a legend in marine aviation. He he actually had jet grades out of flight school initially right. and wanted helicopters because he had such a good experience. As a grunt being pulled out of combat By the helicopter in a helicopter, he wanted to go yeah. back and do that. Yeah. yeah, his mindset was, "What if it was me?" And and you know how do you how do you how do you even begin to quantify that? That's the title. That was the title of this uh, previous episode. What if it was me? Thank you, Sticks. Yeah. Again, proving that Sticks is smarter than you and me put together. Fig. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. We're not even getting warmed up. Right? He's that I know. smart. Just sits there and lets it roll off his tongue, like you know, like he knows that stuff. So he opens, this you show know, I with a crazy uh, story, huh, Fig? we we. Oh my gosh, I know. So just imagine being uh, all eyes on this operation where uh, they were trying to prove the validity of the Harrier mission in the beginning of the Harrier program, and all eyes on you. Hello, low on fuel. We got a. Now what are you going to do, smart low, guy? We got, we got flashers, got flashers, flashers oh. meaning you got a few minutes. Oh, a couple and of by the way, deal. nowhere to land. The deck is full. Foul deck. Yeah, nowhere and, to land. Nowhere. And we're talking about the AVA day, which is unstable. <laughs> you know, we're not talking about the B, which has some extra stuff added onto it to make it more stable. We're talking about the A, a model. Yeah. You know, you never fly the A model yeah. of anything. The B was a Cadillac compared to the Absolutely. A model, buddy. The, the A was a uh, Ferrari. So, anyway, getting getting the stories straight from him, priceless. Absolutely, absolutely. And he was priceless. there the night that one eye, unfortunately, got his call sign. Well, in HMM three sixty two, off the coast of Vietnam, and he was the backup when one eye got shot. He he was the next one in to go in and pick up more Marines that night. And a bad bad situation yeah. at the Battle of Dido. So. Man, God bless those guys that they hung it all out there, and some of them gave all to to be able to do that. So more interesting, more interesting stuff along those lines. And then 
And then he wound up getting the fixed wing transition. We talk a little bit near the end of the show. In fact, let me tell you right here, folks, we're going to split this into two shows. So you may not hear this part of it about how he was in Harriers. I think you'll hear how they wanted to send him away from Harriers at one point. They had, I think, three mishaps and a couple other helicopter drivers involved in mishaps. And someone went, oh, I got an idea. They all flew helicopters. Let's get rid of those guys. He stood up for himself. Hey, I did. I did learn something, though, from this episode. And that is that ye, it is possible to fill a Zippo lighter with 115 low lead from the low point drain of a UH-34 helicopter. Right? That almost gave us another title for this show. We considered that one. What was that title thing? <gasps> well, Quezon could be hazardous to your health. <laughs> yes, it could. Very famous battle in Vietnam. So, hey, we're going to get out of here story. and let you About hear what Sugar has to say, a.k.a. Carl Spicer. Sticks, you got any advice for the folks? Will they uh, strap in and listen to this episode? On the tanker. Don't let go with a collective. Don't do it. What? Thanks a lot. We really appreciated that. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. There I was, crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fun. So there I was, uh, decelerating to USS Nassau, LHA-4, just off the coast of Lebanon in my AV-8A as a squadron CO. And I was number three in a flight of three. We had put my weakest pilot in the middle. My operations officer was in the lead, and he managed to land. And then the second man was supposed to land at spot seven, and he gave it to Allah at about 25 feet and broke off the starboard outrigger, which created quite a fury on the flight deck. And I was at that time almost at flashers, which left me with about three minutes of fuel remaining. And I waved off, of course. I took it around, and I came back. And this time I was re-decelerating to the aircraft carrier, and there all the spots were full. There was no place to land. At that moment, I had a thought in my head that if I shelled this thing and ran out of gas, that would be it for the Harrier. I mean, that we would never be able to do blue water ops again. We'd have to have a bingo. We'd have to have a tank or all sorts of crap like the big decks do. And I looked at the deck, and there was an elevator right near spot six and seven, which might have given me a little more room. And so I kicked it cross actually. I think I may be the only pilot ever to land cross actually with an AV8A in between spot six and seven. For an old 34 pilot, it wasn't a big deal. But, and I remember my LSO saying, We got people down there. We got people down there. And I said, They'll get out of the way because it's going to get real hot. And I hurry. I touched it down, and just as I sucked the power back, I flamed out. No shit. And that is how all <laughs> great aviation tales begin. Oh my god! Terrifying. I got hilarious. The, the hairs and, and, of my arms are standing and you pissed up. Right off the Navy in the process. So good <laughs> on you, sir. Repeat here, coming to you from Cambridge, England tonight. Where are you oh. at, my co-host Fig? 
Hey, I'm in uh, Kearney, Missouri, just outside Kansas City, and holy shit, that's how you start a story right there. (laughs) Wow, we have with us Spice again. He has come back, and I didn't think there were any better stories from the last time, and he just uh, set the bar at a whole new level. (laughs) Welcome back, Spice. Well, thanks. It's always great to be around you guys. Uh, I'm sorry, not Spice, Sugar. 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 Uh, Yeah, which is how we got the call sign. Which Uh, is, for those of you not recalling, he was on an earlier show with us. Somebody helped me out with the number. W.R. Spicer, author of the five-book series, Sea Stories of a U.S. Marine. And they are fun reads. If you spend any time in the Marine Corps or know a Marine or love them, you're going to know. So it was episode 51 is what I'm being told. So yeah, episode 51. And that comes from none other than someone known and loved in the books as Katie. So Ah! yes, (laughs) Katie. uh, I'm familiar with Katie, as a matter of fact. (laughs) Yeah. Bet she's your favorite daughter. (laughs) She is my favorite daughter. And she is the one that designed all the covers. To all the books I've written, all nine. Oh, that's outstanding. But specifically the the five books, the Sea Stories of a U.S. Marine. She did a wonderful job with that. So that's fantastic. Wow, great wow. Books, folks! Really, go if if you if you know a Marine or knew of or know how to say Marine Corps, go read the books. They are fun and amazing stories. Great stuff in there. So, but yeah, let let's get into some of them. Some of my favorites involve. Well, not only your hair you're flying, but you spent a couple weeks in a little country down in Southeast Asia by the name of Vietnam back in the day. You flew with the Ugly Angels, and we've had a couple other Ugly Angels on the show over the past year. And yeah. so, so let's spend some time there, I think. What do you think, Fig? Yes, yes, let's do, because I can't get enough of that. <laughs> yeah. Especially since before we started recording on air for for the podcast, that is, I uh, related to Sugar that I I got to sit sit in, touch, rubbed on one of the air one of the aircraft he flew in Vietnam. That's been flying around as a flying museum. I saw it in an air show in Kansas City. I checked the bureau number, and I think I think I have about oh uh, ten or so hops in that airframe. No way, that's awesome. <laughs> It was, it was an unusual aircraft to fly. A lot of people said, well, you know, it was made out of magnesium. It had a one, uh, an R1820 <clears throat> piston engine in it, and it burned 115-145 aviation fuel. We used to crawl underneath the airplane when our Zippo lighters ran out of fuel and hit the petcock to drain a little gas out where you'd take the gas sample in the morning if there was any water. <laughs> And uh, it did make your cigarettes taste funny, and it had an awful black smoke, but it, it lit your, lit your uh, cigarette lighter. You could, fill, you could fill your Zippo with that stuff? Oh, yeah, we did. <laughs> when you could, we did. <laughs> oh, dear God. Now, here's the thing, though. Yeah. I, I, I don't. I love I, that. I could be wrong, but I'm guessing that your the health of your lungs was the least of your concerns when I, flying yeah, those missions no. in Vietnam. <laughs> I remember. I remember landing at Quezon one time during the siege in '68, and I was waiting there for a load and some ammo, water stuff, and a couple of replacement guys for 881 North or South, one of the one of the main zones. And this kid had on his helmet. It said. <laughs> something about caisson could be hazardous to your health, you know, <laughs> smoking caisson could be hazardous to your health. 
true. You didn't really worry about smoking, you know. So. Nice. Oh, that's that's awesome. <laughs> that that could be a title. Well, yeah. <laughs> one of the guys you uh, interviewed, Ben Casio, was a yes. squatter mate of mine, and and of course he, I think, told you all about him losing an eye. Yes, uh, that was uh, right at the beginning of the Battle of Dido in the summer of '68, and HMM three sixty two was on USS Iwo Jima, and the, we were in support of Second uh, Battalion, Fourth Marines, the Magnificent Bastards. Uh, yes. And we we had, we only had like two or three days to get everything to get the squadron aboard the ship and the whole battalion reinforced battalion aboard the ship as well. And unbeknownst to us, the NVA had tried to sneak down. I don't know. I think it was a division size strength unit down across, not down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, but this was right out near the beach, you know, right. a couple clicks off the beach. And I guess they thought that nobody would notice. Uh, <laughs> we were we were on the Iwo Jima. We were just off the coast. The ship had to stay outside the artillery fan because every once in a while when they got too close to the beach, they'd take artillery fire from uh, across the DMZ at them. And, of course, that scared shit out of the Navy. We, we, managed, <laughs> we managed to beg them to stay on the horizon so they didn't get out there too far. <laughs> but anyway, they... The, the battalion, we hadn't been on there more than about 24 hours, and the, the special landing force commander said, we're going to put in a company of Marines. And so it was a, a big lift. I think we had 14 air, we had 24 airplanes in the squadron. We had 14 airplanes in that lift. And we put them in as you went off the ship to the beach. We went to the mouth of the Quaviat River and went in about a click. And then there was a tributary. We call it Jones's Creek for lack of a better name. And you turned up that and we took the Marines up there. We put them in and they sat in. And somewhere along the way, they ran smack into a lead element of this NVA division. Oh, shit. And we had been flying quite a bit that day. Anyway, got back to the ship and then they wanted an emergency extraction. It wasn't an extraction back to the ship. They just wanted to pull back because they'd walked into each other and, and neither force was prepared for the fight that was going to ensue. Ooh. And so we had to get back in there in a hell of a hurry and we picked them up. And we knew we knew it was really bad news because they weren't bringing anything but their rifles and their water and ammo. They left oh boy. packs, you name it. And we rushed them back to a, a location closer to the mouth of Jones's Creek and, and dropped them off there. And they were consolidating. And a fellow named Biff Stedman and I were told to hang back as a medevac and then somebody would relieve us. So we did. We landed just right on the riverbank and we were waiting, hoping we didn't have any business. And finally, oh, it was getting around six o'clock in the evening we got a radio message to come back to the ship that night medevac from the ship would now take the, take the responsibility. And that night, night medevac lead was Ben Casio. And that was the night, wasn't it? Was that the night he lost his eye? Yeah. Oh, uh, so, so anyway, the Ben and, and his, the wingman was a fellow named Robbie Robertson, who was a really good friend of mine as well. We used to spend two aircraft at night. Day medevac usually went single plane with a gunship. 
night medevac, no gunships unless you needed them, and it was just two H-34s. Okay. And so Robbie was, he was dashed too in that formation. And Biff and I, <laughs> we just drew the short straw and they said, you're night medevac backup. What? Yeah. After sitting there all day? Yeah. Well, we'd, we'd been flying for about six and a half hours that day, but that wasn't, that was not an unusual thing in the 34 community to do that. So you'd go back to the ship and then sit, sit we went alert? Back to the ship, had a little bit of chow and, and watched the movie and went to bed. Okay. And sometime, I don't remember, well after taps, I heard Ben and, and Robbie cranking up on the flight deck. Well, we lived on the O2 level, so you could hear everything that was going on in the flight deck. Sure. Okay. So, and, so that's uh, the level right below the flight deck. for. Yeah, it's the, first, it's the first deck below the, the flight deck. That's the Thank O2, you, O2 level. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I, I remember waking up and hearing, hearing them crank up. And I fell back asleep. And then just a few minutes later, it seemed like, boom, I got a flashlight in the face. And I said, Spice, you and Stedman are up. Casio just took grenades in his own. Oh, shit. Bad, yeah. bad deal. And what had happened, the story I got anyway, because I never saw Ben after that. I've never seen him since, matter of fact. Well. They were in the landing zone, and they, they were all mixed up with the NVA and everything. There was hand-to-hand combat going on, and a grenade got lobbed close to the aircraft, and shrapnel came in and took out one of his eyes. It wounded the, the crew chief, who was one of our really good crew chief guys. And I don't think the gunner got wounded, and I don't think the corpsman got wounded. The corpsman was a guy named Doc Jones, first-class petty officer, He'd been in 362 longer than anybody and was probably one of the bravest SOBs I've ever known. Just a real hell of a guy. And anyway, they they couldn't couldn't get the medevacs out. And uh, somehow or another, I think the co-pilot, Larry Houck, who was uh, another friend of mine, but he was killed later on. He got the airplane out of the uh, zone and... Somebody had built a helicopter pad at the mouth of the Quaviet River on the south side of the river. And uh, Robbie Robertson came in, and he was flying formation on him pretty well, and he told Hauk to take it to that pad. And he turned on his landing light and was flying beside him and was illuminating the pad so Hauk could get it on the pad. And they landed both aircraft. They managed to get Casio out, evacuate that aircraft. They left it there. And he came back to the ship. Well, in the meantime, they called and said, you're on. So we went up to the flight. We were ready for a scramble start. We took off. And I remember the ship was heading away from the beach. It was a fairly moonless night. And I was still a co-pilot. I was flying co-pilot for Lieutenant Biff Stedman. And we made a climbing left-hand turn off the flight deck back toward the beach and I was reaching over, turning off the rotators, any, any lights we had. Right. Right. And when we leveled out, you could see the tracers bouncing, you know? Oh shit. And I, I looked at Biff and I said, this is going to be a good one. And he said, Oh yeah. So we, we, we proceeded on in and the, the, uh, the, the fact or the, the one four was call sign was Dixie diner. And we said, Dixie Diner 1-4 Pestkiller Medivac, we're, we're pretty close to you. And he said, uh, can you see the tracers? We said, yeah, we see. He said, can you see where they're crossing? And we said, yeah. He said, well, I'm right below the cross. And that's the zone. 
And I and, oh, and he came right back and he said, there's no way in hell you're going to get in here until we get some suppressive fires out on these guys. And so we said, well, we're waiting. You just tell us when to come. And there you go. so we, we popped it up to about 2,500 feet and went in an orbit where we were close enough. We could continue to sneak in there. And finally, he, the, the, you could see the suppression of the fires were starting to work because the tracers were going out away from where he was. And so he said, okay, I, I got six guys that need your help really desperately. If you want to make a run, make a run. And we said, we're coming, we're coming down. And uh, Biff shot a, what we call a spiral approach. A co-pilot's job was to, if he exceeded 45 degrees angle of bank or started losing his turns or any of that stuff, you were to take the airplane and level it out. The same thing, if he got hit going in, you were to take the airplane, level it, go around. If he wasn't too bad, you know, just hit, but he was okay, you were to go back in and get the medevacs and then get out. Right. Holy, holy shit. In the meantime, we got a word that Robbie, the, the wingman, had got everybody back to the ship, and now he was refueled heading in to back us up in case we got nailed going in his own. Right. Uh, we we heard the word that Robbie had said that when, when Ben landed in the zone, it looked like a bicycle wheel, and the, the tracers were the spokes. Oh, and I He bet. was all in there, and they were just going crazy at him. Yeah. But the other part of this story that that we we got a different version on and backed up by uh, Gunny, who was was also in the, in the squadron prior to he had already gone home by this point in time. Was that uh, Lieutenant Hauk was actually hit and unconscious? That Ben flew that thing out of there blind. And I he don't got know. A, uh, yeah, he got a he got an award. Was it a? Is Silver Star? It was Silver Star. Silver Star with, yeah. with Combat V. Yeah, and, for flying that thing out blind and listening to <laughs> the crew chief it, tell him, "Okay, bounce it, bounce it," because he needed. Yeah, you got to get, gotta get up. You lift. <laughs> they had more Marines on there than they expected, <laughs> well, and then Robbie is the one who guided him ver- verbally back down to the mouth of the Quaviet River, and yeah. he flew it blind. And then the Marine Corps got really cheesed when, or no, no, the Navy. Who was it? The captain of the Repose got mad when. And Casio got in the seat and flew with only the ability to basically see light and dark and large objects. He flew later. himself back to the medevac ship. Or he flew. Came over he and said, got his trash. And then they said, hey, you want to fly back? He's like, yeah, they, I guess they can't tell me I can never fly again if I already have. <laughs> yeah. So that he co-piloted really- on the way back. And then they, he said the uh, the captain of the repose is apoplectic when he realized that the, the patient had flown himself back. Well- <laughs> the Navy used to get really upset. We'd come back with some battle damage or something, a chip light, and you know, and you're, they didn't want you to land on their flight deck, and you had wounded Marines in there. So what the hell are you supposed to do? You know, and I, yeah. I remember one during one time during that same battle after Casio got hit, a day or so later, they were bringing Marines up as replacements, and they had rigged the combination ladder, and the kids were coming out in boats, climbing up the combination ladder, walking across the flight, the hangar bag, the wounded, they were taking the 782 gear and piling it in a pile. And these young Marines that were coming in to be replaced us to pick up a cartridge belt, a canteen, a rifle, and a sack of ammo and come up to the flight deck on the elevator and get in our airplanes. We'd take them back in. Uh, we, they, they, were taking, uh, they were taking gear out of the pile? Yeah. Gear out of the pile from the wounded Marines? Yeah, they didn't have any equipment, so they were just oh picking up. Stuff the wounded Marines have been stripped and, and dumped in a pile. And Sure. We were trying to issue ammo on on the hangar bay, and, and I, 
some Navy commander comes out of nowhere and says, you can't do this. We said, are you aware there's a war going on out here? Yeah, there's a fighting, there's a and fighting war going, need, a shooting war. We need the bullets, you know. <laughs> right. You're going to have to delay lunch until we, you know. Yeah. Whatever. Well, you know, the Navy can't see it going on, so it's really not happening. Well, you know, you'd see it when, you know, when you'd come back and there's an airplane full of holes, you think you might want to think there's a war going on in there. Well, but, uh, yeah. Anyway, and there's that. They it, it took them a while to get the message. I think it really did. And yeah. you used the term there, 782 gear for those. Oh that yeah, let's talk about it's that. Exactly what we just. It's exactly what he just said. It was cartridge belts, canteens, backpacks, all that stuff. That's your 782 gear. And I, I don't know. Does anybody you know, know why it's this. called 782 gear? I don't know, but why, why, it's did, just, why did they put down? One peg tent, a one yeah. man field. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. Everything's commas yeah. and backwards. Oh, yep. Yeah. Right. Well, okay. We'll have to do a little research on that because I kind of want to know why it's called seven eighty two. Trivia question: Why is it we were on that, When we were on that Harrier carrier, the Har- Aviate A had a little umbrella that hid down here. There was a hole for it right up here on a canopy bow. And when you were standing close air support, you know, five minute alert. You could take, and it was hot. You could take that umbrella, pop it open, and stick it on there. What? Yeah. Wait, wait, hold on. Hold on. Uh, <laughs> wait, I, I gonna have you got to stop. Where exactly was this little umbrella before you? It was back over it? here on the on the right hand side of the cockpit. For somebody like me, you had to know where it was. I couldn't turn and see it. <laughs> I, I couldn't. I, you know, I couldn't even see the radios. I had to do the it. British think of everything. I have got to everything. I'll tell you who didn't think of it, McDonnell Douglas, because no. it's sure come in the AV-8B. Well, you, <laughs> you can sat there and roasted. I was going to say, but they caught, we had a, a switch on the batteries. It was called cab rank. And from the London cabs lining up in a, yes. it's a cab rank. So you were lined up for a close air support mission and you wanted to keep your electrics online. You hit the cab rank switch on the nine switch row over here and you had to have them memorized because you couldn't see them. Right. right. It was down low. But the, everybody kept it. stealing those damned umbrellas. And we got out on the Harrier carrier and we were standing five minute alert a lot screening for the big deck. And, <laughs> and so we put in a request <laughs> for for I think 45 or something like that of these umbrellas for the AVA days. And we got 450 pith helmets. You remember the, the yes. looking helmet, World War II helmet? Yes. Oh, so, um, being the senior guy around, I said, okay, we'll wear them. And we ever <laughs> walking around. <laughs> we never got the umbrellas, you know. But, but we wore yeah, the pistol some- helmets when you were on five minute alert and then just throw it down to the guy when you were supposed to launch. Yeah, oh, that's beautiful. Just, that's beautiful. too good. That's hey, too well, good. S- Sticks, the Coast Guard already stepped up with the answer. 782 gear, standard issue web gear, such as Alice, Moly, or Ilby, yeah. so-called because the group section of the national stock number for personal field equipment is 782. There you Holy go. shit. One jacket, well, there you go. field. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. And oh, you, sticks, want to see you know way oh. too much stuff, man. <laughs> hey, he also put out, we talked about, when I got the Silver Star, it's Silver Star's the third highest award in the military, one step ahead of the DFC. Distinguished Flying Cross. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 I'm not so sure you shouldn't have got a DFC. <laughs> or more. All right. Yeah. 
Okay, yeah. holy yeah. cow. I, I'm still trying to process the umbrella part right. that was hidden <laughs> down on the, uh, did you say, I, was, I think we said it was the right-hand side of the ejection Yeah, seat. I believe it was the right-hand side back down here. Too much crap on the left side to put an umbrella. But. <laughs> <laughs> if your schedule feels as crazy as an aerobatic routine in midair, I might just have something for you. Imagine having a parachute with over 40 recipes dropping in every week. A parachute that ensures that you don't crash and burn at dinner time. And you know the feeling when you soar through the cool, crisp autumn air? That's the same burst of freshness that you get with HelloFresh's in-season ingredients. We're talking peak ripeness that you can taste, folks. Now, I hear some of you fellow pilots muttering, but the pre-flight checks in the kitchen. Well, don't worry. No more navigating grocery aisles or decoding cryptic recipes. HelloFresh sends you pre-portioned ingredients with easy-to-follow, illustrated, step-by-step recipe cards. It's like having your own ground crew for cooking. And for those days when you've got to bolt faster than a Cessna from a thunderstorm, HelloFresh has quick and easy options, including 15-minute meals, less time than it takes you to taxi up and fuel up your bird. And as the leaves change colors and that fresh fall breeze flows, you can even indulge in their limited-time fall flavors from the HelloFresh market. I tried the mini pumpkin cheesecake the other day, and let me tell you, it felt like soaring over a pumpkin patch. While I've always enjoyed the satisfaction of making a nice dinner, I've never learned properly or been trained on how to do it well and efficiently. Since we've been HelloFresh customers, I successfully made what I would consider very complicated meals. But they weren't. My kids are impressed, and I'm not about to tell them it's as simple as following a pre-start checklist with photos to keep you from augering in on your first attempt. Before I sign off, fellow pilots, here's a deal that's smoother than a perfect landing. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 50 so there I was and use code 50 so there I was for 50% off plus free shipping. I'll repeat for those still circling the airfield, HelloFresh.com dot com slash 50 so there i was and use code 50 so there i was for 50 percent off plus free shipping trust me it's america's number one meal kit for a reason safe flights and tasty bites to you all okay this just popped into my head in the b in the b model the stencil seat the ejection seat safety was underneath your right armpit. Yeah, right? You pull it up. Yeah. Okay, yeah. and and I in your book that you know Harry, you oh. watched uh, one of your peers basically accidentally eject himself on the flight line. Yes. because he was in a. That was when you would they were transitioning between seats, right? Uh, yeah. W- would you tell that story? Well, you know, we had the Martin Baker, which was uh, pretty punishing to anybody my size. It automatically broke uh, T twelve if you ejected because because that was a that was a shot that was a or like a a charge. It was like an explosion. Forty, 40 millimeter cannon. That's what blew you out of the airplane. Wow, and that that's what it was a forty millimeter cannon. And anybody, you know, six foot over one hundred eighty pounds usually broke. T12 when they went out and it, it wasn't, uh, it really wasn't very fast. Plus it had, I don't know, damn near a dozen connection points. It was, it was really, well, there had to be a better solution and stencil came up with it. The seat that we, the first seat we got, if you were inverted and 
and pull the handle from like a hundred feet, it would get you out in one point seven or eight, seven eight or eight seven yeah. seconds uh, with a fully deployed chute. And it was a rocket seat, so it didn't just bang into you really uh, bad like the forty millimeter cannon. But anyway, we had a hell of a problem because they were doing them sort of one airplane at a time. And so if an airplane had a stencil seat in it, you could wear the American gear. If it, if it didn't have a stencil seat in it, you wore the British gear. I liked the British gear right. much better than the American gear because it had a breastplate and you used a diluter demand uh, oxygen um, regulator. Yeah. Um, and because the Harrier only had five liters, the Aviator only had five liters, a lot of times you were locks limited on some of the things that you were going to do, particularly. Oh, for- no kidding. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Transland or Transpac, you know, you, you sort of tried to breathe a little bit less than you would. and Hold, hold your breath a little there, would you? <laughs> yeah, you, you'd pull a glove off, so that one glove off so you could watch your fingernails all the time. Particularly. Oh, for the love of Pete. Oh, yeah, if you were by yourself. So so anyway, the I was a maintenance officer of MA-542 at the time, and we were just having a hell of a time trying to, you know, to sort of schedule around flight gear. I mean, everybody had two sets of flight gear. And I like the British flight gear, so I went to the flight equipment guy and I said, hey, what happens if you just put a piece down here on the bottom that picks up the two Coke fittings, you know, and the other Coke fittings are right there? Would that work? You know, instead of us having two flight gears, we could continue to wear the British flight gear uh, until they get finished. And he said, I don't know why not, you know. So I went to the CO, the 4790.2A at that time. Said the commanding officer of a unit could modify one of anything for test and evaluation purposes. So I said, boss, how about we put in a Remec? I'll modify my gear. We'll see how it works. He said, go for it. And we did. And it worked fine. So we gun decked the, the Remec up through Syscom and everything. And it was coming back. And VMA 513 Dead A, the OIC of that, decided he'd jump the gun a little bit. And he went in and did all the modification without the Remac being in place. Anyway, so he had the whole, whole squadrons of flight, uh, he had, flight gear. He had a six airplanes. He had a six airplane. Oh, okay. Okay. And so the, the bottom line of the story was he was coming back. He had a stencil seat in the aircraft and he had the modified uh, British flight gear and his oxygen mask. You didn't have any place to pin it at that time. Okay. Anyway, his oxygen mask was hanging down and he, did not fully arm the seat or he forgot to arm the seat. I don't know which, but in any case, you know, you had, you had to kind of reach under the seat or over the seat to pull that handle up. If you were smaller, I guess you, you did it one way for me. I just reached and pulled it up this way, uh, right. straight up, you know, my arm on top of the lever. Anyway, his seat wasn't fully safe. He stood up, the oxygen mask hooked the lower handle ejection handle and that seat hit him and he was standing up and hit him right in the ass it drove him right over the canopy bow right down over the top of the pedo boom and the tug was backing up he bounced off the tug and landed on the on the hard standing on the concrete out there on the flight line myself and a guy named ed jobin who happened to be a safety officer of the squadron was getting out on the flight line and yes. you just heard this bang and looked around and there, there he goes, you know, he's already bouncing off yeah. the thing. He's the only man that has survived at that time. 
He's the only man that survived a an accidental ejection unrestrained on the ground. Yeah, I mean it's not strapped into the seat. Holy Unbelievable. Smokes. I know. When I when I had read that in your book, I had a I had to go back and go over it again. I was yeah. like, What? Wait a minute, he lived? Yeah. Yeah, yeah what? Yeah. Absolutely. He did. Yeah. Oh, wow. He set off every I flew with him commercially, we flew a couple of meetings and things, and he had the ugliest looking forearm x-ray of the forearm and it was a metal couple of metal plates with wood screws holding the whole thing together and what? He'd go through the airport thing at first his body and then he'd pull his arm through like this you know? <laughs> all the bells and whistles would go off but but yeah he flew 100 days after he did that Oh, that's incredible that really is incredible so i have a stop you just for a second because there's a couple so first of all, I don't know if we've ever said this, locks. Let's yep. define locks. Liquid oxygen. And yep. so uh, the B model. Or you yeah, eat it on a bagel with cream cheese and it's terrific. Yeah, it's not, it's not what you think about locks. So yeah, it stands for liquid oxygen. And airplanes prior to the B, like the A4, the AV8A, all those airplanes had liquid oxygen that that, that you would breathe instead of yeah, You guys had OBOGs, O-box. right? We had OBOGs, yes, yeah. Right. We had OBOGs, which is an onboard oxygen generating system, so we were never oxygen limited. Right, yeah. No, we thought that and, was a wonderful thing. Um, yeah, it was brilliant. And, and Sugar, before we go any further, I, I took a note earlier earlier in our conversation because I wanted to get back to it. I, I got a note, and I didn't ask you last time we talked. Do oh, hold on. Hey, Fig, I'm sorry. Let me jump in real quick because I got two more terms I wanted to ask him about. Oh, go ahead. R- Raymec and Cisco. Oh, yeah. Naval Air Systems Command. Right. They're they're like the They own the airplanes, Delphi. right? Well, they're they're like the Delphi <laughs> Oracle when it comes to what goes on with your airplanes and all this sort of stuff. Whether they know what they're talking about <laughs> or not, it doesn't make any difference. They've got the last <laughs> They word. think they do. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they, they certainly do. do. <laughs> they, they have a thousand answers and no questions. It's amazing. <laughs> and Ramek is a recommended. Well, that's a show title there, A Thousand Answers and No Questions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, there are a few of those around. But uh, Ramek was a recommended aviation mechanical something or other change. And it was it was an engineering change. That's what it was. Right. And we did that on the Aviate Day. We did that several times. The British did not know what a Zeus fitting was. <laughs> they had no yes. Zeus fittings on the Aviate Day. They yeah. had these little screws, and you had to have an Allen wrench to unscrew them. I think yeah. there were seven or nine on the refuel panel. So that meant that the mechanic or the plane captain had to carry these Allen wrenches with him somewhere, which was a FOD factor if he dropped. One more thing to lose. Yeah. And, and you know, the other thing was on, on the hell hole, you had to drop this panel. They called it the ELR panel, which gave you uh, access to the electronics compartment on the AVA You could actually stand up to look at some things once you got the panel out of the way. But they were all these screws that had to be done, and they were bigger than the ones on the on the refuel panel. So yeah, oh, of course, course. different sizes. Three different yeah. sizes of these things. And that meant two different Allen wrenches. And the pilots, if you went somewhere, you had to have that Allen wrenches with you because nobody else had those Allen wrenches. Right. And so can you imagine, you, you fly a night hop, you come back to the ship, 
and they got to do it daily in a turnaround on this machine. And it's at night on a flight deck. And you got a, a Marine laying on his back trying to undo these little Allen wrench screws, a dozen or more, out of this panel and drop the panel down. You know, right. it's raining, it's windy, it's whatever. And they blow out of the, uh, usually drop them right in the panel itself to, so you knew where they were. But that didn't mean they were going to stay there. Right. No. Well, it was just awful. And we put in first thing, one of the first things I did after I got into maintenance in 542 was I called in my ground maintenance officer and I said, why can't we put a Zeus fittings in a, in a refuel door? I don't know, you know. And so I said, well, could we, you know, I went to the CO again. I said, can I modify one airplane, see if this works? And he said, sure, we did. It worked. And Never since come, sprinkled holy water on us and said, yeah, you can do that. <laughs> now, Remac came down for us to modify all the airplanes, and that really helped. And then it yeah. took a while to get the one on the ELR panel. A BAE, Dr. Father, John Father, a wonderful guy, father of the Harrier, you know, he, he said, oh, that's a stressed panel. You can't do that. You know, we said, well, well, we did, and it works. You know, we're really excited about that. Right, panel. yeah. So well, now we've got to describe what a Zeus fitting is, which is – you brought you were a maintenance officer. Please, if you would, sir. How does well, Zeus mean? How's that work? It's a cam lock device, and thank you. What it's spring loaded. It's it's a cylindrical thing that has a spring in it, and at the end of that rod that's being controlled by the spring is two little pieces of metal that stick off the end of the rod. They go into a hole, and then when you turn it, it locks it. Uh, yeah. So Simple. it's real easy to undo. All you got to do is put put a screwdriver in there, or a, we had a Zeus key. Yeah, you push right. it, you turn it, and it pops out. The thing's open, and you don't have all this pieces of stuff that could be fod around your flight deck or on the on the ship deck on the flight deck. So right, right. And the other cool thing, yeah, yeah, it stays with the panel. Doesn't yes. fall out. Doesn't yeah, it fly doesn't around. fall out. It's right there. It's, it's, it's fitted into the metal of the panel. So awesome. All right. So I'm sorry to interrupt and get definitions on all those terms, but well, that's uh, good. Yeah. I'm glad we did. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Now here's my question. Uh, this goes way back and way back. So, you know, president Kennedy took your lighter uh, <laughs> that you bought for yourself for graduating from boot camp, yeah. And as you were leaving that command to go back to the fleet to actually go to Vietnam, the Admiral gave you another Zippo lighter with his flag on it, right? I still have it. Okay, that was my question. Do you still have the lighter? I still have that lighter, and I also have his card that I keep it in my jewelry box with my you know, emblems and things. He had a card made up, and he, when things got screwed up, he would say, Spicer, give me a card, and I'd go to his Etsy cabin, get a card, and he'd come out and he'd write a note on it. And he'd say, deliver this to so-and-so or take it down to the helo guy because he's going to helo this over to the ship, some other ship, a part of the test group. Yeah. And it said, the Admiral wishes to apologize for the confusion and wants to remind you that he's a reasonably intelligent fellow, but he has a rather stupid staff. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was Admiral Outlaw, Edward Cobb Outlaw. He was quite a character. 
<laughs> oh, that's that's outstanding. But I've got one yeah. of those cards. I've kept it all these years. <laughs> well, I so I I was what I wonder. I can always think about that lighter, the lighter that you lost, and the lighter that you eventually got. And I wondered if you still had it. Thank I, you for that. I, I still have his lighter, and and you know I put in the book about what the, the guys. There were about forty enlisted men that were on the admiral staff, six Marines, <laughs> and the rest were sailors. But to a man, not the Marines, they didn't ask me, but to a man, the sailors came up to me after that. And, and every one of them would say exactly the same thing. So the son of a bitch stole your lighter, huh? <laughs> it's, all right. It was universal, you know? Yeah, I love that. I love that story. I tell that, I actually tell that story a lot. When I talk about your podcast, I tell that story a lot because <laughs> I love that story. All right. That is, that is a fantastic story, which even goes better to when the president of the United States asks, can I smoke on the flight deck? No one went, yeah, you don't smoke on the flight deck of a carrier. It's just oh. not done. Oh, yes, oh. sir, you can. <laughs> your, your boat, you do what you want. You know? Yeah, yeah. But uh, the race to get an ashtray and a lighter was uh, – oh. you know. I love that story. I love the description of it in the book. I, I love – I mean, just the whole thing, the glances back and forth, everybody checking their pockets. <laughs> yeah. Right. I love it. Yeah, I remember Admiral Masterton looked at me like, help, you know. So, And I just handed him the lighter. I didn't think about it. So, <laughs> oh, That's great. All right. I was having a thought when uh, when we were back talking a, a few a few minutes ago about the, the uh, boat ops in the in the AVA day. Well, yeah. Yes. I, I, I didn't write it down at the time because there I was were too no, busy uh, about something. When we did the AVA day, there were no landing aids whatsoever. Not, okay. For night operations, they weren't any at all. And, oh, that's terrifying. And, had I not been an old H-34 pilot, I would have found it really difficult. I was pretty scary as it was, but we had a fellow that was a Pax River test pilot, and he had been part of the project when they did the shake, rattle, and roll on the Harrier. You know, that's a test program where they take it out and just beat the hell out of it and see if they can break it, uh, yeah. particularly shipboard ops. And anyway, he decided that we would try night ops. I was in VMA 542 at the time. And he took a, a land-based Fresnel lens and had it heloed out to, I think we were working off the Guam then. might have been the EWO, but anyway. And he mounted it somewhere up forward on the port side with the idea we could pick the beam up and do a decel, a descending deceleration if we kept the ball centered and we would come to a hover over spot seven on an LPH. And it might have been good in theory, but it wasn't roll stabilized or heave stabilized or gyro stabilized in any way whatsoever. So you might be on the ball and it would disappear, you know, <laughs> depending on what the bow of the ship was doing. <laughs> and and I, I was a, a rookie. I mean, I, there were guys had a lot more time in the Harrier than I did. I, I barely had 25 hours and they went out, we went out and we day, day qualified. And then he rigged this thing up for night. And he launched three of us off, boom, boom, boom. And <laughs> I was number three, and the first two, they came in there, and they waved off, and they went back to Cherry Point. <laughs> yeah. 
and and I, I brought it I brought it in there, but I I, I quit looking at the thing. It was making me sick because it was moving. You know, oh, you don't know who's moving you or the landing aid. So anyway, I just I said hell with it. I flew it like an A thirty four, just just decelled to the flight deck and landed. And he asked me on the radio. He said, "What do you think?" I said, "I think this is a losing proposition. You're going to kill somebody." And so they shut it down for a while, and they tried to redo it, and then they reconstituted that. We tried it again, and I, I, and, and I was the one that had more night experience landing vertically on a, yeah. any kind of deck or with any kind of airplane. And he said, "What do you think?" I said, a "Mark Mark Branham was his name. He's a great guy." And I said, Mark, this isn't going to work. You know, it's just, you're going to have to have a gyro stabilized. And we, ne- so we never had a night landing aid in the AVA day. That's, that's terrifying. I'm shocked you didn't kill somebody that first night trying it, you know, and well, well I guess the seas were quiet enough, you, you, but yeah, you said they left. Oh, they weren't, they weren't too, they weren't too bad as far as I was concerned, but the, the other guys, they were strictly jet pilots and they, they just took one look at this mess and said, I'm going to beach. And, uh, and I don't blame. <laughs> right, hmm. I I don't either. Holy smokes! Did um, did you sugar? Did you ever fly the B model no, at all? No, I I. In fact, uh, you guys know Ben Hancock. Uh, yes. Oh yeah, yes. lawman. He's been. We know the lawman well. Yeah. Well, okay. He was. In fact, he was a CO at two thirty one one time. I I went up as I was retired, and Joe Anderson. General Anderson was a squadron commander, and Ben Hancock was a captain at that time, and he was in a squadron. And so when I went up to be a guest speaker at a mess night, he assigned Hancock to me as my sort of aide for the weekend or whatever. He was your handler. and Yeah, and Ben, <laughs> ben was just really gracious, and he, he wanted me to get to see a bee because I'd never really seen a bee up close and personal. I'd never been in a cockpit. So he took me into the hangar and had power applied to this thing. And he's, he's showing me all this gee whiz stuff. And I'm going, oh, shit, I'm glad I wasn't trying to fly this thing. I'm not smart enough you know, to figure this out. And he said to me, he was showing me all the stuff in the HUD and you know, how you drop your bombs and everything. And he said, I'm telling you, Colonel, it's just like flying a great big video game. You're like, what the hell is that? And I said, well, Captain Hancock, what do you do when some discourteous son of a bitch stuffs a 50 right through your video game? How do you get the ordinance off? He said, oh, we'd have to go back. I said, no, it didn't work that way, Ben. <laughs> Those guys out there digging holes with their ribs need help. You That's don't right. ordinance yeah. back to the base. you got to figure out a way to put it on the target. That's right. Get the pressure off. And he said, well, I don't, we don't do that. He said, how'd you guys do it? And I said, we did it by airspeed, dive angle, and altitude. You had to pickle at that one point yeah, in space old. to hit the target. And I said, you, you went down there, airspeed, altitude, dive angle. You know, you got in so close, it looked like you could lean out of the cockpit and hit it with a big orange. And you pickle the bomb, then you put put a whole bunch of Gs on it until that white shit come off the end of your wingtips. And went around <laughs> the field again. I said, I call it the big orange theory. And he goes, oh, yeah. okay. So so anyway, we had the mess night, and that went well. And uh, I got through the speech and so on and so forth. And I'm going to go home on uh, Monday morning, and I'm in Joe Anderson's office, and somebody's going to take me to Kingston to catch the uh, airplane. Right. 
And Joe said, hey, Spice, you want a cup of coffee? I said, yeah, that'd be great. So he goes down to the ready room. He gets a few cups of coffee. He comes back. He's laughing. I said, what's so funny? He said, they're down there talking about the big orange theory. <laughs> and he said, Ben Ancak asked me, he says, is that the way those guys really did it? And he said, yeah, work for them. <laughs> so I, could, I couldn't believe all the stuff you guys had to manage and to be. I mean, that was just mind-boggling, you know. Well, you, I think you it know, would be. Go, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Vic. I was gonna. I'm gonna say it's. Uh, I can't imagine what's going on in the cockpit of an F-35 now. Oh, yeah. right now. That's exactly what I was gonna say. You know, I went back last year and I looked at the at the 35 at the. I'm sorry, the Harrier, and we never had this targeting pod that that thing has on it now. Right. Oh man, is that's whiz bang laser targeting pod, air to air radar. What the? I understand that uh, you could you could have two Harriers on either side of an F-35. And he can drop your ordinance and hit the target. Okay, that's is that right? I don't. I, I don't listen. know. But I, this is sounds, this is all pretty whiz. Ba- it's all witch doctor shit now, man. I think about the fact that the helmet costs three hundred thousand dollars, and and we used to drop mine frequently on the ground. Accidentally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, exactly. No oh man. Well, so let me ask one other quick question. We did some serious proving of the Harriers as a weapon system, you got the rumor at one point, and I think, I don't know if it ever got past rumor or what have you, but you were in 231, which was the Harrier rag at the time. And there was rumor that they were going to take you, you rotor heads out. Was that? Oh yeah. 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 And and you went and stood up for yourself and said, what are you nuts? And and I think that'll prove, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about that. First well, of all, yeah. kudos to you for standing up for yourself. And then I'd like to come back and talk about why you were that guy that, that was uh, key in history. You want to do that now? Or are you taking a Yes, break? sir. Yeah. And then we'll, so, we'll, we'll start with that story. We'll so what, what, so if, if I remember right, what led up to they said, uh, you Hilo guys are, are, right? are going to, yeah, there was a, there was a couple mishaps or a mishap. And, we had, and, uh, yeah. Right? I, I was assigned to VMA 231 uh, in that fam, in the FAM class. It was pretty early on in the program. They didn't really have a syllabus or that sort of stuff. We had a month of ground school, taxi hop, acceleration hop, and then you flew the airplane. Yeah, no, no simulator, no two seaters. It was no. walk, walk, jog, run, fly, basically, right? Yeah, pretty I much. just want to say good luck. We're all counting on you. Yeah, yeah. Don't be nervous. Everything depends on you. <laughs> so, but anyway. <laughs> anyway, uh, we, were, we were all up for our first hop ever. And I told you about the CEO taking me up 25,000 feet and having me depart right. the plane. Y'all roll intake momentum drag. And came in and you did, you were briefed to do a fixed nozzle 60 degree fixed nozzle landing which would be, be kind of like landing an a4 you're going to talk yeah. about how slow 29 we called that a slow landing back in right slow landing you no. just set the nozzles and no the slow landing in av8a was you you maneuvered the nozzles all the way through the landing okay uh, you set 90 percent on the on of the power you pointed your nose at exactly the point on the ground you wanted to touch down. Sounds like a variable nozzle landing. And well, it, it was, but that's what they okay. call a slow landing. Okay, because okay. you could be almost any speed by the time you touch down. You know. All right. Yeah. But I'm sure they ter- changed the terminology. But 
But anyway, I went out on my first hop. I came back. I did a, a fixed, a 60-degree fixed nozzle landing touchdown. And right before me, a fellow named Jax Williams, he's a retired general, landed. And his airplane did a funny little dance. The Aviate didn't like to land. It, when it got on the ground, It you had to make it settle, on get solid on all four touchdown points. Because it, it would do a little dance if you didn't. And you could lose control of it. Anyway, he his aircraft did a little dance, and he got it under control. And the torque link, on which is a link on the outrigger that bends up and down like this as the outrigger folds or comes down, yep. bent. And I came in, and the aircraft did a pretty pretty good dance. And I, I was really fighting it to keep from leaving the runway. And I didn't know what the hell I'd done wrong because I the touchdown was was really good. I thought anyway. I I kept it on the runway, and they told me to turn off at the first taxiway. And when I did, one of the members of the squadron met me, and he gave me the cut sign and shut down. And I got out of the airplane, and my torque link had broken. Yes, um, and so I walked into the thing, and the, my my chase pilot had been a squadron CEO, Lieutenant Colonel Rocky Nelson, who was a great guy and a hell of a good pilot. And he said, the debrief's out on the runway with the LSO truck. So I said, yes, sir. And I just dropped my gear and I followed him out there. And the other guys were coming in. And the LSO was, one of them was a Brit who was a squadron leader, hoof proud foot. And the other one was a guy named Mickey Taylor, who was a very experienced Navy LSO. And he was on exchange for purposes of getting involved in the Harrier program for the Navy. And one of my classmates, a fellow named Duffy Doherty, was coming in, made a perfect pass. And Colonel Nelson and I are standing there right by the two LSOs. And as the aircraft rolled past us, you saw the starboard outrigger bouncing. It wasn't down. It wasn't locked. It was just bouncing along behind it. Like trailing, trailing? Yes, sort of trailing, and but it would trail up, and then it would fall down and bounce back up. Oh, shit. And uh, uh, Taylor said to him, well, as he slowed down, you know you know what was going to happen? It was going to drop on a wing. So right, as, right. As, as he slowed down, Taylor said, shut it down, shut it down. Well, you know, in hindsight, he might have been able to say, go to full power, take a, go around and get him to desal okay, sure. and land it vertically. But we didn't know about stuff like that then, you know. Yeah. It's so, easy to money morning quarterback. So, right. yeah. I mean, you know, everybody could money morning. But anyway, he said, shut it down, shut it down. So, Duffy shuts the airplane down. As it slows down, it falls over on the starboard wing. And, of course, that creates a tremendous amount of drag. And the airplane starts to make a 90-degree turn on the runway to go off the runway at a 90-degree angle. Yeah, but they didn't tell us what Cherry Point was on that side of the runway. We were landing on runway five. On the east side of the runway, there was a 15-foot or 12-foot sort of ditch. But you couldn't tell there was a ditch there because the weeds were so high. They didn't cut the weeds in the ditch. Yeah. So Duffy goes off the runway at 90 degrees. His nose of the airplane goes into the ditch. It hits the other side. It breaks the nose off right at frame 19, which it's supposed to. And, but in that process, it sympathetically fired the seat. So Duffy wow. goes straight out with his head leading the parade through the weeds. Well, Colonel Nelson started running immediately toward where the airplane went off. 
and I went with him. We were we were running down into the ditch, and all of a sudden, I thought about the fact that the it, by now there was fire, and I thought, holy mm-hmm. shit, the, the the liquid oxygen is going to go up any second. Oh yeah. So and he was just running fast as he could. I grabbed him by the back of the fly jacket. I pulled him down. I fell on top of him. The damn locks went up. The liquid oxygen exploded. You could hear the shrapnel going through, cutting the weeds above our heads because we were at the very bottom of the ditch. We're getting wet. And then as soon as you heard it went by, he was up and running. And we went, as soon as we got out of the ditch, we saw the path that Duffy and the seed had made out away from the aircraft. We got to the, we got to the aircraft and uh, got to Duffy and he was still in his seat. The, 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 the gun was still smoking. We don't, we, you know, I didn't know if it had fully discharged or not. And Colonel, Colonel Nelson said, I got, I got more airplanes in the air. We got to get them on the deck. You stay with him. So he just takes off. I managed to get Duffy unhooked from the seat. I pulled his survival mirror out, second under his nose to see if he was breathing. And he was making a little breath. He was fogging the mirror a little bit. And about that time, the 46 uh, Sarbird came in. We got him, got him on a board, got him in there and took off. Then I went back with Colonel Nelson. And just as I get back there, another guy comes in and he does a little dance and he runs off the left side of the runway. Oh, in the Harrier, when you open the canopy in the AVA, a step came down. Right. All right. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. if you tried to, if, if if there was something holding that step up, you couldn't open the canopy. Right. Well, he's down in the ditch. The engine's running. They're trying to get him to shut the engine down. He's not hurt. He manages to sort of slide down in the ditch, but b- because the engine just sucking up every bit of mud, rocks, whatever it could, it's fodden and it finally it finally dies. Well, he was a helicopter pilot. And Duffy was a helicopter pilot, and I was a helicopter pilot. And unbeknownst to all of us, of course, they they immediately started trying to find an escape goat because we had another crash. You know, we, we'd had one fatality and two other crashes, plus Drax Williams had had a problem, and I'd had a problem. But Drax was a, a jet guy. He was high and wonderful. Nobody thought anything about that. And... So they wound up, they relieved Rocky Nelson. It had to be his fault, of course. Sure. And then they checked all the servicing and everything, and they, when it all boiled down to it. The Brits had, uh, I forget, Daddy Rotol or whoever made the, the, the outriggers, had changed the friction dampener at the bottom because they thought in the models, the older models that we were flying, that the, that the uh, rigger, outrigger wheel castered too freely. So they tightened it up because they thought we were castering too much when we were doing shipboard ops. But they didn't tell us that. The other thing was, if you take this little tiny wheel about this big, going from zero to 120 knots, I don't know how many revolutions per minute that would have been on that little wheel. If it didn't bounce up or something, it's going to shimmy. So it it generated more than 275,000 torque pounds of thrust and it just ripped it ripped the damn outrigger right out of the wing root where it was mounted. And so, we yeah, so if you that. look at a picture of a Harrier, an AV8A especially, that that, that wheel is probably six inches in diameter. Yeah, well, maybe thing. a little bit more, maybe eight or nine, but not much yeah. more. Yeah. Anyway, they, they didn't tell us that. We didn't find that out until it was too late. Well, in the process of trying to figure out what the hell happened, 
their lordships relieve Colonel Nelson, just run him out, you know, just awful. And then they decided they were going to throw everybody with helicopter time in their in their logbook out of the Harrier program. And I had been recruited by Colonel. That'll fix it. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that'll fix it for sure. <laughs> I can't fly, you know. And uh, Colonel Jim Orr had recruited me in, into the uh, Harrier program. He came into to VMAT 203, the A-4 squadron, and I was just finishing transitioning to A-4s. I, I had the MOS. I'd done everything. And he asked me, he said, how'd you like to fly Harriers? And I put it in the book. I, I didn't really realize I was speaking. And I said, yes, before I realized it. And he said, well, because I'm looking for a guy just like you. And he was looking for somebody with mixed time, you know. Right. And I, I, I had enough of both. But anyway, in the brouhaha and all the crap that was going on, Drax Williams, a good friend of mine, he he was a assistant ops officer, I think, of the squadron at the time. He called me and he said, "Bill, they're gonna they're gonna kick you out of the program, and out of the ten pilots that are under training for this class, you're rated number one." And I said, "What do you mean they're gonna kick me out of the program?" He said, "They're gonna kick you out of the program because you're a helicopter pilot." I said, "God damn it! I've done everything I can possibly do to prove that I'm an A four pilot. I've hit the boat. I've done the whole syllabus." And I said, yeah. And I said, if they tell me that they're going to dismiss me from that program, I will request mass all the way to the Commandant of the Marine Corps if I have to, because I want the reasons in writing that I'm being dismissed. Right. And they said, oh. So that word quickly got up through the group commander, and I was requested to show up in front of him. (laughs) <laughs> I, I went up expecting to do the, you know, usual rug dance. And he said, well, what, what are you talking about? And I told him, I said, I think if you do this, you know, I will request a mass all the way to the commandant of the Marine Corps. And I want to see the reasons of writing because I have filled every qualification that there is. And I consider this a direct professional affront based on nothing. Boom. And their lordships gurgled on that one for a couple of days. Yeah. And then they, they just sort of said, well, we'll get back to you on this one. You know, <laughs> I said, okay. And so they sent me, they just, they disbanded our class and they sent me down to 203 and the guy that was the CEO there, I worked for him before I'd been his maintenance officer before we came to the Harrier program. And he said, I need flight time spice. I'm going to give you a jet and a gas packet and go get as much as you can fly the son of a bitch into phase. And I flew a couple of them in the phase. In fact, in November 1974, <laughs> I think I flew 70 hours in an A4. <laughs> That's and wow. Anyway, That's I, a lot of flying in a single seat jet. <laughs> when I when I came came back at the end of that time, the I don't know whether it was the commanding general or the group commander said, "No, I you can't kick somebody like that out of the program." So anyway, after all the dust settled and they decided they were going to start training again. Colonel John Biotti and myself, he was a captain then, I was a major by then. We were a class of two. And 203 was supposed to, we were supposed to train in 203. And 203 was the senior guy that come back was John Gibson. And he'd been on exchange with the RAF. And he was supposed to be the guru, you know, teach you how to, all this stuff. And so, so they didn't have a syllabus. Nothing was written down. And they had brand new, uh, 
Block four airplanes. They smell like a new car when you got in them. And they didn't have the old INAS and all that other crap, the British crap. And so John Gibson and, and Joe Anderson would fly two brand new airplanes down to Bogue Field. And John Biote and I would drive the paddle truck down there and, with our flight gear. And, and they would have burned down light enough that we could start doing VSOL things right away. And we would sit on the tailgate of the pickup truck, of the paddle truck. <laughs> and they would brief us and they'd say, okay, we want you to do a vertical takeoff to an accelerating transition, go around to a decelerating transition to a hover, stop at the two board and land vertically. You know, well, okay. And so that's how we went through FAM. And, and then when we got back, we would, they would get us, set us on the tailgate and they'd say, what didn't we tell you? You know, yeah, what, 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 what went well? <laughs> what could have gone better? Did something happen that you weren't <laughs> expecting? You know, and, yeah. and it was just that way. You know, I mean, it, right. it, it really was funny. And I, I remember the, <laughs> you know, I, I guess in regular training in the T or something, you did one of those things at a time, but they had us doing all two or three oh, yeah. at once. And the very next hop was we were supposed to do a 65 65 stow. And then come back around and do a braking stop decel to the two board and come to the hover and land vertically. Yeah, well, that's sporty. Jesus Christ. That is sporty. You talk about <laughs> eye watering, I'm telling you. And and Gibson was going to mark you down if you went past or you fell short of the two board. You had to be at the two board. Unbelievable. And I remember coming in there. I was still pretty good rate of knots and I stuffed that breaking stop it came up on the power my eyes started running with tears I mean I it scared me so bad I didn't know what the hell was gonna happen and of course when I got out of the breaking stop I came out of the breaking stop and I went to put my hand on the throttle I didn't I hadn't learned yet you know you don't have that anything loose there because I caught the nozzle lever yeah, and it shot me forward out of the out of the hover stop to about 75, 70 degrees of nozzle. So I started oh, shit. forward, and I thought, well, I'll just do a rolling vertical landing, and they'll probably kick me out of the program because I wasn't briefed to do it. You know, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's that's the way it was, and uh, and we went thirteen hops, and they sprinkled fairy dust on us and said, "You're done." Repeat that. This is why those AV-8A guys were legends, because they actually flew the living shit out of the airplane just trying to learn how to fly it. Well, yeah, that was funny. Yeah. yeah. But that's that's the story. It's maybe a longer version than you wanted. but Oh, that's great. And then no. uh, so a couple more quick terms. Request mast. Explain what that is, please. Well, if a Marine has a, a, a grievance of some type, he can go to his commanding officer and he can request mass. In other, in other words, he allowed a day in court to express his discomfort or whatever his uh, problem problem is. And if he, if the squadron CO or something doesn't give him the answer, first level of command doesn't give him the answer, he has the right to go up to the next level. So you can start at the squadron and theoretically go all the way to the commandant of the Marine Corps. There you have go. Your, have your day in court. So. It's a very it's a very effective tool, and I think it's uh, something that the Marine Corps has been very wise to to keep in over all the years. Right? Yeah, it yeah it's good leadership. The ability for you know to access access the levels of command communication. Yes. So yes. that's awesome. There then was the other one, one oh, was go flying ahead. into phase. I was going to say that. There we too. go. Great minds think alike, Fig. 
Well, okay. What does flying into phase mean? So, so you, yeah. so you go down to your local Jiffy Lube, and you get an oil change, right? Yeah, right. five thousand miles, say, and they lube your car, rotate your tires, all that sort of stuff. That's, sure, check all the fluids. And then yeah. at five, you drive it for five thousand miles. A little light comes on in your dash and says you're due for maintenance. That's you're going in to have your car maintained. It's the same way with the airplane. Various airplanes have various lengths of time before they are scheduled for a set of maintenance procedures. And those maintenance procedures may, may include, you know, checking the tires or checking the hydraulic fluid or checking the oil in the engine, or it might be actually some disassembly where they take a part of the airplane apart, take a look at it to see if it's fatigued or wearing out like an O-ring or something like that. And sometimes on a scheduled maintenance like that, you, you could replace all the O-rings in the fuel system or something like that. Anyway, they're called phases. And each phase is done at a certain number of flight hours. And each phase is somewhat more complex than the first phase. Right. right. That is well, an excellent uh, description. Thank that's you. That's a great sir. analogy of it. Maybe. Yeah, I, I would have really bastardized that. Well, we had a hell of a time with the AVA Day because... We had the not invented here syndrome, and of course, David Aerosiscoms was really an enemy of the airplane, <laughs> I think, early on. And so we had uh, five phases of 25 hours. Oh. We were wearing out the bolts and the nuts, undoing them to see if anything was broken. Right. So we, we begged them and pleaded, you know, to, to lengthen it. I said, this thing's like a bayonet. You can't really hurt it very much, you know. Yeah. And we put in Ramec after Ramec after Ramec. And finally, we wound up with four 50-hour phases. And I think that was the last. But a lot of the other airplanes, like an A4 or something, I think it was 100 hours. You know? Right. Okay. Yeah. And, sure. uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Thank you for your time and your service, Colonel. We can't tell you how much we appreciate you joining us tonight. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. We have got some amazing listeners. And the audience is growing, I huh, think. Yeah, it's incredible. It keeps getting bigger and bigger. Just everybody sharing the sharing the show, which is good. Share the show. It's got great stories. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. You heard? Doesn't cost nothing. Yeah. How about let's uh, throw out a salute to our men and women who have served and are currently serving, and a recognition uh, for their family members and family members of all the veterans that have served. Absolutely, sacrifice that these people have put up. Some of them giving the ultimate sacrifice. And the family members who make it possible for them to do that give us the freedoms we have. We're grateful for that, and we thank you for your service. We have some tech acknowledgments we need to get out there. There's a gent. What's his name, Fig? It always slips my mind. Dave the Man Hamilton. Dave Hamilton. Thank you, Dave. There you go. Dave's got some other shows if you're all technically inclined, and you might want to listen to the Mac Geek Gab. I'm a co-host over there. I enjoy doing that show with him every week. Dave also has the Gig Gab for musicians and the Business Brain for you entrepreneurs in the audience. Some good shows. And he does those all under the auspices of a company by the name of Backbeat Media. Online at backbeatmedia.com, they handle all our advertising. If you have a show and you'd like to get advertising for it, reach out to Dave over at backbeatmedia.com. Hey, we've got a glossary. We try to uh, define all the acronyms that... We and some of our guests use, if we 
We only threw out a couple tonight, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Marston, Manning, <laughs> well, uh, Cam, I know there were several. However, Ciscon. if you can't find it in the glossary, shoot us an email at so there I was dot us and uh, either to figs at so there I was dot us, repeat at so there I was dot us, or sticks. Listen, really, sticks is the brains of the operation. Sticks at so there I was dot us, and we'll get that in the glossary for you. So there's no question about that. Absolutely. And if you get a chance to watch us when we're recording in real time, Styx is usually putting those up in the show notes or in the in the chat on YouTube and Rumble and Facebook where we stream live when we do this. So, hey, Fig, word was you were uh, wearing your bikini bottom on the beaches of Italy. I, I was trying true? to fit in with the European style of men's bathing suits and... Uh, I think I pulled it off. They were trying to get close to me and read what it said, because it says, so there I was, right on the bikini bottom. But yes, yeah. uh, we have a merch store. Uh, so there I was, dot US slash merch. And you too can have a, so there I was, bikini, towel, yeah. coffee mug, shirt, hat. What I mean, what is it? It's almost limitless. Yeah. Yeah, I still need to work on the hoodie. I haven't gotten a hoodie up in there yet, but polo shirts of many colors, all kinds of good stuff. Great merch. Have some fun. Great gift for the uh, for the bikini. For the bikini, I'm reading the word bikini. As We're I almost it. out Great of bikini gift. season now, so maybe we should really focus on go. the hoodie. <laughs> right, exactly. You got Christmas season coming up, and the other holidays, which is gift giving time. So read, look out there for some fun ones, even a deck of playing cards or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so there I was, uh, beanie, stocking cap. I don't. We don't. I don't know. We Maybe don't. we should look we into that. Look into that. Bald guys. I don't need know if that's available. Bald there, guys need hats, man. Right on. And not just bald guys, bald women too. Ouch. <laughs> hey, we need to show, uh, throw out a, a big thank you and uh, appreciation to all of our Patreon pilots. Absolutely. They make this show possible. Between them and the advertisers, you're keeping us afloat. We couldn't do this without the financial support that you are providing us. That money isn't just tossed into your pocket. You work hard for it, and you choose to share it with us. That's a big it deal. Is a big We're humbled deal. by that. Thank you. Thank you, because now Repeat doesn't have to pay for everything and tell me how much I owe him. This is kind of nice. We're almost breaking even now. <laughs> <laughs> right on. We're, We're getting, getting there, there, baby. So your continued support is so much appreciated. Thank you. Hey, um, here's the other thing you can do to support us. If you don't want to throw money our way or can't throw money our way, that that's okay. Uh, but what you can do is share the show with others show. let them know about it because the more numbers we have the more advertisers i want to get on with us so they can put their products in front of your eyes and part of that is if you would at least go and look at the products that we hawk these during these shows this week obviously hello fresh slash 50 so there i was that's a great deal. Yeah, that's a big deal. And we wouldn't put that up there if it wasn't something that we didn't use ourselves and, and didn't think it was a good product. So uh, give it a look-see. And just go in there and give it a look-see and using our code to get in tells them that you're listening and you're interested. And that helps us a lot. What else can they do to engage? It can give us a five-star rating repeat. Oh, yeah. Five-star rating. Not four. Not four. Five. Not three. If you got a one-star rating, go find another show and give that yeah, to give them. Yeah, give it to somebody else. Not us. Right? Don't give it to us. So far, 
let's keep our our record is perfect so far so we've got five all five star reviews and man is that awesome and humbling so we read a couple a few weeks back uh we'll probably read some more coming up but yeah thank you thank you it is very humbling yeah yeah a couple other last minute thank yous because it's last doesn't mean it's least hey chase cole you were on our facebook page over there our facebook group i should say if you're not on the Facebook group, come do it. We have pictures up there of uh, people who show us where they're listening to the show. Last week had one in front of Buckingham Palace. Ain't that awesome? That's way cool. Yeah. So Chase Cole is running that group at uh, facebook.com slash so there I was dot US. Thank you, Chase. Join our group over there. Yeah, indeed. Thank you. Um, Brad Silcott over at bdsaviationphotography.com. Amazing shots. And... Sometimes, uh, well, they're the background of our website. Uh, if you see uh, the images there, those are from uh, from Brad Silcott, and he graciously lets us use those. So thank you. Then there's uh, some musicians out there. Hey, before we get to those two guys, let's uh, say thank you to our 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 fellow. Uh, so there I was in the background, aviator, aviator, extraordinaire, helicopter, death-defying pilot, Sticks, who takes care of a <laughs> lot of the logistics in our production. So thank you, Sticks. He does indeed. Indeed. Thank you, Sticks. You, uh, you're a big help, and we are grateful for it, including stepping in when, when Fig had to go away. And I may, I may take advantage of that myself. Let you, let you two knuckleheads try and bang one of these I out. Think, I think you should. <laughs> And speaking of knuckleheads, uh, well, the two guys that make the Air Force sound good are playing in the background. They're, yeah, and they're not they knuckleheads. Not knuckleheads. They, they make the knuckleheads sound they good. They are the dos <laughs> gringos, and their music is fantastic. Thank you, gentlemen, for letting us use your music. Indeed. Thanks so much. Great music. Go listen to the Dos Gringos anywhere you find fine music. Amazon Music, Spotify, Pandora. It's all out there. Apple Music. The Dos Gringos, four albums, fun, clever music. And uh, I guess that about wraps it up, Fig. Until next week, do you have any uh, advice for our listeners? Well, stay safe and check six. Well, there I was crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fond of all the shit I was wearing. On that day Now an F-16 is cramped enough But it's even worse With all that stuff Supposed to save your life But we knew there was no way Cause when you're going down the North Atlantic Man, it's over Hold on, what did he say? He said it's over I just want to tell you both Good luck We're all counting on you <laughs> See ya See <laughs> ya